Good evening. Uh, welcome to the AO North America uh, Trauma Journal Club. Tonight's focus is going to be on distal humerus fractures. My name is John Morlato. I'm from the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi. And tonight, tonight we have a great lineup of uh, speakers for you. Uh, joining me as, as moderators is Luke Harmer from Atrium Health Cabarrus Hospital in North Carolina. We've got Adrian Huang from St. Paul's Hospital in the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And we've got Will Pinnell from California Hospital in uh, Los Angeles. We also are welcoming uh, our invited authors. We've got Dr. Brad Henley from Harborview Medical Center. We've got Dr. Jesse Jupiter from Mass General. We've got Jason Strelzo from the University of Chicago. And we've got Dr. Sean O'Driscoll from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you very much to everyone for joining us tonight. So tonight we're gonna to hear about four different articles and at the end of our session, our goal is to learn from the early experiences of fixing these challenging fractures and learn about different technical aspects and approach to appro approaches and fixation strategies. We'll also hear about total elbow arthroplasty in the setting of elderly distal humerus fractures. And without further ado, we're gonna get started uh, with Dr. Henley's article, Operative Management of Intraarticular Fractures of the Distal Humerus. It's my pleasure uh, to be talking with uh, Dr. Brad Henley. He's from the, the University of Washington at Harborview Medical Center. He's currently uh, clinically retired, but still busy with the faculty there. Um, we're talking about his article from 1987, Operative management of intraarticular fractures of the distal humerus. Um, thank you for being with us, uh, Dr. Henley. Now, uh, I guess I really just want to start with, um, and this was a five-year experience um, at Parkland Hospital in Dallas in the late '70s, early '80s. Can you discuss um, how this paper came about and what the impetus was to for writing the paper? Sure. Um... Let me go back to sort of UT Southwestern Parkland. Uh, Vert Mooney became the chair in the mid eighties and prior to his arrival, most of the fractures, uh, I think throughout the United States, but especially in Texas were treated uh, conservatively. Um, he was aware of the AO and its movement towards uh, stable anatomic reduction and fixation. And he had a vision of moving orthopedic education in that direction at uh, Parkland. In um, the late 70s, he talked with Martin Algover uh, and got a visiting professor to come join the faculty for two years. That was Bernd Cloudy. Uh, one of Bernd's disciples was Larry Bone, who's a co-author on the paper. Um, he, at that, the time we did the paper, he was uh, doing his second residency with us having graduated as a general surgeon from the University of Buffalo and being in practice, I think, for up to seven years with his father. So um, based on... Bert's vision, in 1979, they moved towards uh, internal fixation. And this is about the time when I started my residency there. And it was during my residency that I saw these patients. I was interested in the surgery, which I thought was fairly unique, but I also saw the complications and felt that, that um, we could disseminate the information what we'd learned throughout the, the five years 
to others in the community. And, you know, as a resident, I basically saw the risks as well as the benefits and thought that this was important to share our knowledge and the evolution. That's great. Now, in this in this paper, it, it seems like, as you mentioned, things sort of evolved throughout uh, those years. Um, one of the takeaway points was that to use heavier plates, um, especially with some of the more comminuted fractures, how did your techniques sort of evolve in those early years? So um, the AO implants in the 70s were pretty early and uh, the initial supply was fairly limited. If you remember half tubular plates with 4.5 screws were even used on both bone forearm fractures. Um, and over the 70s, they evolved um, into more rigid plates, such as uh, the DC plates, and then eventually the um, recon plates came out. But during the time of this study, uh, at least early on, the main method of fixation was with uh, third tubular plates, either on both columns, or if I recall, um, not all have that, usually one third tubular plate on at least one column and then either a lag screw or a positioning screw uh, in the other column or even K-wires. And we saw failures when the, the plates weren't uh, stiff. The third tubular plates you know, weren't rigid and we started early range of motion because we felt that was a benefit and one of the principles of the AO of stable fixation and early motion. Um, and uh, they, we also found that the plates weren't long enough to neutralize the bending forces, and we had some supracondylar uh, non-unions, even though the intercondylar fractures had healed. So um, essentially, uh, early on, we were using less uh, stable fixation, uh, those being third tubular plates with or without um, um, less stable on, a, on the contralateral column. And uh, as we did this series and looked back, we found that you needed for sure uh, more st uh, stiffer implants uh, and then gradually went to DC plates. And then as recon plates evolved, uh, used those because they were used to contour to the bends of the columns. Should be noted that early on, the AO did not make both annealed and non-annealed recon plates. So um, you know, they have uh, different properties in terms of uh, their stiffness, uh, whether they're annealed or non-annealed. And you should be aware that those are both uh, available and you have to know which one you're using. Right on. Um, now, you had 29 of 33 patients in this series have uh, osteotomies. And it, uh, again, a number of, uh, uh, another one of the take-home messages was that um, the tension, tension band fixation provided uh, or produced a high complication rate, and you recommended uh, the cannulated screw fixation. Can you talk about sort of how that evolved, and then how fixation of osteotomy has evolved in your in, throughout your career? Yeah, certainly. I think of the uh, um, the osteotomies. Fourteen were fixed with K wires and tension band wires, and that was a classic method of AO teaching. Um, we found that it was difficult to impact the bent K-wires into the electron because of the, the cortex being so, um, so um, thick. Uh, and 
in order to impact them, sometimes we drill a couple of small holes and uh, counter sink them into the cortex. But most of them were left proud, as you can see by the X-ray images in the article. Uh, they were just impacted as best they could through the triceps. Um, let's see, we found, you know, when we looked at that series, a lot of the KORs backed out irrespective of how they were, quote, buried, uh, or that the, the, the tension band wires and KORs can, could fail. They uh, either bent or broke, leading to uh, non-unions or delayed unions. Um, uh, the other half, another 14, were fixed with 6.5 screws, I think because the early failures we saw with the tension band wires, um, but even some of the, oh, uh, only one of those failed, and that was, I believe, with a short 6.5 screw, so we started to move to longer 6.5 screws that engage the metadiaphysis and not the uh, shorter 6.5 screws, so there's really no instructions on the length of screws uh, to use or the length of k-wires or whether the k-wires should be even put out through the anterior cortex the ulna and the we didn't do that they were just sent down the canal and therefore didn't have a bicortical fixation um, the other thing that evolved is i think all of these osteotomies were done transversely to the long axis of the ulna and what we found was that there was no really interdigitation, like in an olecranon fracture of the, the, the spicules of bone. And that smooth surface was just didn't lend itself to uh, stability. Um, what has happened since that time is we uh, you know, talked with others. Uh, we moved to a chevron osteotomy with the, the base of the, the chevron, you know, in the olecranon, the apex, approximately uh, into the metaphysis. And that gives both a rotational as well as bending stability. What we found with the transverse osteotomy and the 6.5 screws, because of the proximal bend of the ulna, if you inserted the long 6.5 screw, it's, it's very stiff and it tends to translate that uh, osteotomy slightly and didn't give you the rigidity or the anatomical alignment that you would of light, whereas the chevron of positions that that reduction well and uh, maintains the stabilization. So um, other than changing the shape of the osteotomy, uh, we've also now evolved to using a plate fixation nearly 100% of the time and have we've looked at our case at Harborview have essentially no non-unions, I mean, rigid fixation uh, with a lag screw from the apex of the plate into the anterior cortex and with not what we call the home lens screw down the medullary canal from the, also the apex of the, the ulna with a couple of two or three screws in the metadiaphysis. So um, essentially it's an evolution from less rigid fixation that was weaker and failed to more rigid fixation and now even to the most rigid fixation with plates. Um, Irrespective, I mean, the olecranon is subcutaneous, and some of these implants are symptomatic and have to be removed, but um, uh, that's not routine. Great. Well, thank you very much um, for sharing uh, your article with us and your thoughts on that. Um, it, it's much appreciated. You're welcome. It's my pleasure uh, to be
So we'll move on to our next article. Um, this is complex distal humeral fractures, internal fixation with the principle-based parallel plate technique. Luke Harmer and uh, Dr. O'Driscoll. Dr. O'Driscoll, thank you so much for joining us here this evening um, on this AO North America webinar. Um, yeah, thank you, Luke. It's really a privilege to have you part of this panel. Um, so this paper back from 2007, Complex Distal Humerus Fractures, Internal Fixation with a Principle-Based Parallel Plate Technique. Um, can you take us back to before 2007, you know, 15 to 20 years ago now, um, tell us about, um, intraarticular, uh, complex distal humerus fractures and, and what was the state of the art back when you were starting to think about this question in this paper? Yeah, sure. Look, it's great. Thanks for the privilege of being here. You know, when I would introduce this back then, and, and I think I'll just use the same way of introducing it right now, I would just ask orthopedic surgeons, if you had a maybe an AOC3 fracture of the distal humerus, would you be distraught or, or, or you know, really worried? And almost everybody would say, yes, I would be. Would, what if you had a maybe a, you know, a lateral malleolar fracture of the ankle, would you be distraught? And not many people would be. And, and I would ask, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that we know we knew how these turn out and, and they did not always turn out well. In fact, they often turned out really badly. And so there was a problem. Uh, you know, we thought we knew how to fix them and we thought we had that um, understanding adequately uh, as surgeons to do a good job of it. But we recognized that there was a problem and the problems related to the fact that they didn't always heal. If they healed, they often ended up stiff. And the stiffness was often because we didn't trust them to not fall apart if we got them moving, and so we would protect them and mobilize them for a period of time, even after internal fixation. So these were very, very intimidating types of fractures to try to treat. And I think most people would say that it was a really, really difficult thing to do a good job of a badly uh, fractured distal humerus. That makes sense. So the paper that we have in front of us, most of us have had a chance to, to read it and, and see what you did, a case series of 34 fractures and 33 patients. So will you take us through the principles? Um, you know, the title of the paper is a principle-based parallel plate technique. Um, what are those principles that you outlined in that paper? And, and how, how does this paper help us as orthopedic surgeons take better care of these, as you say, these scary kind of fractures that perhaps might have a bad outcome? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Luke. And we called it a principle-based approach because um, we felt that the contribution here was um, uh, a, a, a essentially a communication of the principles that we believed would enable the improvement of the treatment of these fractures. We, we didn't propose to have the technical method that was the way they should be treated. We weren't trying to do that. It was, here's a principle uh, a set of principles on which we can approach the problem. So the first step was to identify the problem, which we just spoke about, the problem being non-union at the supracondylar level, typically at supracondylar level, sometimes the intercondylar level, and failure of fixation. Or if those didn't happen, then the problem was stiffness, usually because of concern about either of those happening and therefore the resulting immobilization that was used. So having said that, um, that was a problem. We had to develop some principles by which we would understand how we might improve that 
uh, on that problem. And the problem was due to inadequate fixation in the distal segment. So if we think about the shaft and the distal segment, which has often in these fractures multiple pieces to it, um, it was just not possible based on techniques at the time to get adequate fixation to stabilize that segment of the distal humerus to the shaft the way we would normally fix fractures with rigid internal fixation according to standard well understood AO principles of to which I was a strong adherent. So we had the problem, we identified two principles that could be satisfied potentially and improve that. The first would be that we would have to optimize or maximize, you could use either word maybe, fixation in the distal fragment itself. And the second would be that any fixation in the distal fragment should, if possible, contribute to stability at the supracondylar level. Meaning if you're going to put hardware into the distal segment, try to make that hardware contribute to both optimizing fixation distally and stabilizing the distal part to the shaft. So those were the two principles that we set out to try to uh, satisfy. And from those two principles, we derived a list of technical objectives, which if fulfilled, should result in the satisfaction of those two principles. Initially, and in this paper, there were eight. We came to realize that one of them really probably wasn't necessary. We dropped it to seven. And so there are um, five that are concerning the screws that go into the distal segment, and two that concern the relationship um, involving the plates that join the distal segment to the shaft. And so those objectives are things like every screw going into the distal segment should go through a plate that satisfies both principles, number one and number two. Screws should that go through a plate should go all the way across and into another fragment that's stabilized by a plate. So they become a fixed angled stabilized screws before we had such a thing as fixed angled screws. And, and we went on to develop a number of other, or to list a number of other. And a key one was the one in which we want to um, link the two columns together and create something that from an engineering or architectural perspective has structural stability. So the concept of an arch, and without the arch, uh, without, I'm sorry, without the keystone in an arch, an arch is not stable. It's not stable until they're linked, all the parts are linked together. But in fact, we want to go way past an arch alone. We want to actually link, structurally link the two columns together and all the pieces in between the shaft on one side, the distal segment, and back to the shaft on the other. Can you talk to us about how things have changed since 2007? And then specifically, have the, has the advent of locking implants at all changed your principles or changed your management of these injuries? Yeah, that's a great, great question, Luke. Once locking technology came out with the list plate for the distal femur, I recognized right away it was going to play a role in the distal humerus for sure. Um, but let me start out by saying that, that locking plate technology is one of the least important things about all this. And I would also say that I don't think that a skilled surgeon who understands these principles and has had some practice with them, I don't think that such a surgeon very rare, very often, maybe rarely even, needs locking plates. I, I'm perfectly comfortable. When we had only one set of locking plates here, I always made sure that my partners at the other hospital um, had it available to them, and I would just use regular non-locking plates unless we could bring the set over, in which case I would use the locking plates. So locking plates have many advantages, and I don't need to espouse what those are. You, you, everybody here, I think, knows what the advantages are. So they somewhat diminish 
um, some of the requirements for, uh, shall we say, precise satisfaction of all these technical objectives. So you might get a little bit of leeway on some of them, but when the fractures are really, really, really complex, locking plates are not gonna solve the problem whatsoever. So yes, fixed angle screws are good, but the best way to make a fixed angle screw is not to lock it in the plate, but to lock it at the other end. The way you convert a diving board to a diving platform, you know, a diving board, doesn't matter how strong you make it, it's still gonna be a diving board. And so the way you convert it to a diving platform is you put something at the other end. And that's why objective number two is that every screw that goes through a plate in the distal fragment should be anchored in a fragment on the other side that's fixed in place by a plate. So you convert your screw to a, a fixed angle screw. It's not locked in the plate, but it is a fixed angle screw. And then when you do objective number five, which is to interdigitate and lock them together, they all become locked together. So is it a locking screw or is it a locking system? Of, or is it a system? Yeah, is it a system of locking screws or is a locking system of screws? And a locking system of screws is structurally, from an engineering perspective, far more stable than, um, than just trying to lock the screw in the plate. That, that makes a lot of sense. That analogy um, makes a lot of sense. Um, and then tell me about uh, the, the posterior lateral plate versus the lateral plate. Um, that's one of the things that I think has, has come from this paper that this idea of putting a lateral plate um, on the lateral column instead of the posterior aspect of the lateral column. Um, are there any downsides to that as you you know worked with this, this technique? Um, yeah. Is there any disadvantage of moving the plate over laterally, perhaps putting it over the lateral ulnar collateral ligament? Is that give patients stiffness from the position of that plate? Is there anything, is there any disadvantage of this change in technique that you- Right, right, yeah. Have? Yeah, good questions, really good questions. Several questions in there. So trapping of the LCL. The LCL is trapped for one of two reasons. Either the plate design did not take that into consideration and, and multiple plate designs failed to take that into consideration. So when I would see the plate the first time I saw it, I thought, oh yeah, well that's gonna trap. Maybe not just trap, maybe even necrose the origin of the tendon and or ligament, but it will trap the tendon and or ligament. So plate design is important. You look at an x-ray of the humerus, and as you get to the lateral epicondyle, the humerus then goes inwards to the capitellum, but the body does not go inwards, the body continues outwards slightly. And the plate coming off the lateral epicondyle at that point should leave the bone and be either stop there or be off the bone. And if it's off the bone, the screw will trap the soft tissue, but that screw should be taken out some period, six or eight or 12 weeks later when you think stability is adequate now that you don't need that screw anymore. So trapping the soft tissues occurs by plate design or by, by planning that it's just an inadvertent complication required to get adequate fixation. And that's for the severely common, you did low distal humerus fractures with coronal shear. And then you bring the plate down far enough onto the side of the capitellum that you get additional purchase in bone and stability by the plate. And you know that's going to trap it. And that becomes a two-stage procedure where you know you're going to come back and do a contracture release uh, later with hardware removal. As we all know, the bone is the fun part for us as orthopedic trauma surgeons especially, but it's surrounded by a soft tissue envelope. And, and we many of us who treat these injuries have had complications related to wound healing that's yeah. often raised to, yeah. to fix these fractures. 
Can you talk to me about soft tissue management in these? You alluded to flaps on the lateral side not being larger to get around to the lateral side of the lateral column. But yeah. what have you learned? What can you teach us about soft tissue management? Yeah, yeah, that's that's that's. I think that's probably the the single biggest thing I've learned since I published this paper, or we published this paper. Um, so uh, back then, I did not really comprehend fully the 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 impact of this relationship that we, that you've just raised. And um, for example, in that paper, we had two patients who were reoperated for wound healing complications, one of which had a deep infection. Uh, but wound healing problems are unquestionably related to not just the magnitude of the soft tissue injury that occurred, but the flaps that are raised. And so to the extent that you can decrease the flaps that are raised, that's going to, in the end, have an impact on the, the potential complications related to soft tissue um, and wound healing. Um, so on the medial side, for example, the flap is big if we go all the way around and transpose the ulnar nerve. If we don't transpose the nerve, the flap can be substantially less. Um, I don't have an answer for whether the nerve should or should not be transposed. There's still many reasons both ways to think that it should or should not. But having said that, um, with a distal humerus fracture, um, we're, we're, we're forced to raise some flaps unless we can develop a technique and it would be very worthwhile if we can, where we do not have to raise those flaps. For example, if we can perfect a technique where we can go in medially and laterally and raise no flaps at all, um, or do some of this somehow or other percutaneously, if that ever becomes technically possible for us, that would be an enormous step forward because I think it would greatly diminish it. But in the meantime, the post-op management really matters. And that's the part I did not register adequately back then. So we knew that we should get these moving. We did. We even used CPM in some of these patients. Um, I think that that keeping the wounds still, keeping the arms still with the elbow extended and a soft pad on the back, so a very thick Robert Jones type bandage with plaster on the front that keeps the elbow straight, um, dramatically better than keeping the elbow at 90 degrees. I think if a trauma surgeon today took only one thing away, I would say familiarize yourself with immobilizing the elbow and extension with plaster on the front and soft wrap everywhere else, of course, rather than putting it 90 degrees. Um, and that has a dramatic impact, I think, on the healing of the soft tissues. And the second is that I don't move them before five days. And I'm not sure whether it should be five or seven or 10 or even a little bit longer than that. If there's a real wound concern, I don't move them until I'm fairly sure the wound is okay. But, but somewhere longer than three days and maybe even longer than five days would turn out to be much better than shorter in terms of wound healing problems. Outstanding. Well, Dr. O'Driscoll, I think we'll we'll stop there for, for tonight, but that's outstanding. Thank you so much. And um, we look forward to seeing some questions in the chat later on. So thank yeah, you very much. Thanks very much, Luke. Really appreciate it. Okay. Um, what we'll do next is we'll... Dr. O'Driscoll. We'll uh, talk about, uh, I'll hand this over to Dr. Uh, Harmer for a little bit of discussion regarding the first two articles. So it's, it's really a privilege to hear Dr. Hanley and Dr. O'Driscoll talk about the early experience as they've worked out their techniques for um, figuring out these fractures. And um, as time has gone by, we've, we've learned some things about this. So um, let me start by um, asking uh, Dr. Hanley, uh, we heard Dr. O'Driscoll talk about the change in technology and in your video there you spoke about the change in in the implants starting with one half tubular plates and moving towards 
um, the various uh, recon plates and such. Um, let me ask your comments on locking plate technology um, and, and how that has changed your practice in the management of these injuries. Now, I tend to agree with Sean. I don't think it's necessary as long as you can obtain a stable construct. Um, and it's, you know, not going to hurt, but it's expensive. And if you're looking at the cost effectiveness of these implants, you definitely, you usually don't need them. Um, I think they're a little bit more helpful if you have a lot of intercondylar comminution. Um, and also perhaps when you have dissociation from the medial epicondyle from the medial condyle or trochlea. And, and as, as we're talking about fixation, um, I'll, I'll put forward a question from the, from the chat um, to Dr. O'Driscoll, we'll start. Um, some, sometimes it's convenient operatively to, to lag the articular pieces together prior to managing the, the metaphyseal reduction. Is there a role for, for using an independent articular lag screw prior to following the rest of your principles of uh, a screw, uh, every plate goes through a, uh, every screw goes through a plate, forgive me, um, as we start to fix these fractures? An independent lag screw, does that hurt or is that, or could that augment the rest of your principles? Yeah, Lou, thanks. That's a really good question because if you apply um, a very basic standard principles of fracture fixation, if you get interfragmentary compression, and then you can neutralize that with, with a plate or plates, and the distal humerus would be two plates, um, then you've accomplished the goal. The problem is that in these fractures, very often, that's a difficult thing to accomplish. So let's assume that this is anything other than a simple fracture. You know, two pieces of condyles with a single shaft in a young person with strong, healthy bone, you can compress those and neutralize them probably however you want, and it'll probably do okay. But let's say that it's not that. It's got some comminution or the bone is soft or anything else. Now it becomes important that you accomplish those two principles. And if you put the screw across the condyles to begin with, you probably are interfering with placement of a future screw, a future meaning a future in the next hour or two, uh, into that distal segment. And that therefore will compromise ultimately the fixation you get in the distal fragment and, but more importantly, the linking of that to the superconnor level, or in other words, it will fail, it will interfere with contributing to superconnor stability later. So I strongly recommend learning how to hold off placing that screw that you want. You can place it later, but place it through a plate. And if you're all finished, you've got the plates on everything stabilized, you know, screws can go into the distal segment then and build onto the hardware. But you should try to hold off until you have the plates in place. I agree with you, Sean. Um, one of the things I've found is for the three, five screw, unless you have a very large stature individual, that's gonna take up the central portion. Um, usually can get a 2.7 and a 2.4 perhaps through a plate, but I agree with you, use a provisional fixation, use K-wires, which can be extracted and save your screw fixation for your plate. Yeah. So it, it's so interesting how the discussion on these fractures so often turns into discussion about the fixation, stable fixation being one of our principles. Um, we sometimes ignore the anatomic reduction portion of this. So um, for any of the panelists, um, would, you, would you give us one or two tips or tricks about the vital steps in the reduction part of this? And that could be anything from approach 
um, right through. How do you manage getting an anatomic reduction, both of the articular surface, but as evidenced in Dr. Henley's paper, the metaphyseal reduction can often be a challenge and non-union at the metaphysis is a big problem in these fractures as well. So, so um, Sean, let me start. Um, you know, generally we use a paratricipital approach through a posterior midline incision. And um, after doing that approach and mobilizing the triceps and identifying obviously the ulnar nerve and the radial nerve, uh, we perform an arthrotomy to visualize the joint surface. Um, that's done, the visualization is done more easily with a headlight and maybe a small tenaculum or bone reduction forceps on the, the olecranon without doing an olecranon osteotomy. And you can distract the joint, uh, evacuate the hematoma, irrigate it, and get a pretty good view from one side and the other um, of the olecranon as the fracture. The most difficult part in the reduction is if you have uh, is the separation between the capitellum and the trochlea or a trochlear split and trying to reduce the rotational alignment of those two um, components. If they're attached to the epicondyles, no problem. But if they're, one is dissociated or the second is dissociated, that makes it more difficult. And it's only in, obviously in simple C1s, we don't do an osteotomy, but if you can't get that reduction by manipulating those fragments, either with small dental picks, then we'll go ahead and do uh, an osteotomy as uh, sort of I described. Um, and then it's obviously uh, VistaVision, you can see everything. But uh, the key thing I think is the reductions aren't difficult. Uh, most of these fractures go click together perfectly once you're um, able to reduce that rotatory difference. Um, and let me, and also they seem to click together in the metaphysis. We oftentimes for metaphyseal comminution will uh, use some micro or mini plates to provisionally stabilize fragments uh, unicortically, saving the medullary canals of the columns for uh, the longer screws. So I'll stop there and let Sean expand if you'd like to do so. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, and I think probably we all feel that um, if there is any additional measure of difficulty that you're experiencing, it makes perfect sense to get the exposure. Um, and don't struggle with a limited exposure. That's, that's not necessarily a good idea. And a couple of things I found have been, one is to try to push the fragments against the, um, the coronoid and the radial head. Um, I actually do the supine, which is not easy if you don't have plenty of help. But if you have plenty of help to hold the forearm in place, then you can actually use the weight of the forearm coming back against you to push the pieces up against the coronoid and the radial head. And that corrects this rotational displacement that that you just described. And then you fire a temporary K-wire across to just hold it there. And the second thing is that when it's commutated at the level of the articular surface, um, you wanna try to get it, convert it into something that looks like a two-part articular surface. Build up the pieces one on the other, or if there's a single piece in between, you can trap that piece. And I'll make one clarification that. The posterior comminuted pieces, I don't put on until the end uh, when everything's all fixed, you can build those on at the very end. And uh, if they're on the back table because they're so comminuted, then quite frankly, you can see through that gap and even help with the uh, alignment there. While you were speaking, Sean, I thought of a couple other hints. You can put small joysticks in the fragments to help rotation. 
or mm -hmm. a small bone reduction clamp on the epicondyle to, to um, help with rotation. If you're doing this prone, then by having someone elevate or lift up the forearm to take the dependent weight mm -hmm. off it and the flexion, um, that really assists more with the reduction of the articular component to the, um, to the metadiaphysis or diaphysis. And lastly, a large bone reduction clamp from um, the center of the trochlea, making sure you don't have uh, the external portion of the trochlea, um, protecting the ulnar nerve to the, the capitellum or epicondyle allows uh, good control and compression once you've obtained your reduction. It continues to stabilize it. And lastly, as you said, I think you know, building from one to, to the other, in other words, when you have intercondylar comminution, gradually assembling the pieces and advancing K-wire. So for placing a, a provisional K-wire in the first component, reducing the second one and advancing that a little further into that component and adding additional pieces while you advance the K-wires uh, leads to success. Awesome, thanks for that discussion. I think that's, that's super helpful for us who are struggling with these fractures. A number of the, the participants in the chat are asking about the coronal shear um, fracture and then specifically with regards to parallel plating. So I'll turn this to Dr. O'Driscoll to begin and, uh, and then invite the others to chime in. But it seems to be counterintuitive to use parallel plating, which would be in some ways parallel to the fracture plane. So Dr. O'Driscoll, can you talk us through the fractures that have a coronal plane component and, and how do your principles apply in that scenario? Yeah, it, it, thanks, Luke. Um, it, is, it is counterintuitive. And I hear people say that that's if you're ever going to really use 90-90, if you're in favor otherwise of uh, sagittal plating, that that's when you should do it. But in actual fact, um, I think it's probably the, the epitome of the most difficult fracture to fix in which you should use that. So, and I can pull up a couple of slides to show it if you like, but here's the key. The key is that you want two screws to go. This will be medial over here and this will be lateral. You want two screws to go through into the coronal shear fragment. Those are long in the coronal shear fragment. Those screws go through a plate medially and those screws are gonna be locked in position by two screws also going through a plate from the lateral side. Now you have these locked together and that coronal piece can't go up or down. All it can do is go forward, can't go backwards. It can only go forward. And that's locked in place by one or two screws that go from back to front, interdigitating with the others. So you get this three-dimensional grid work of bone and metal all locked together as part of the very same principle-based approach that you use um, that we talked about in the paper. And a key part is to have a plate that comes down on the medial side under the epicondyle onto the side of the trochlea because then that screw goes right straight across into the coronal shear fragment. The other one goes through the epicondyle down into it. And you might only put one screw from medial to lateral. That's probably okay, but um, I use two. If you like me, I'm glad to pull up a, a slide uh, uh, sequence. Yeah, I, that shows I just that. add that depending on the plane of that coron those coronal fragments, we also will bury countersink 2.0 or 2.4 millimeter screws in order to neutralize those shearing forces. So that's mm -hmm. also available. And uh, especially if you can't get your plates to capture them because of their, the, the fragments orientation. Um, there's one a question here that I uh, wanted to add that someone asked about uh, interarticular distal humerus fractures, do we prefer olecranon osteotomies and tri or triceps tongue splits? 
and we definitely prefer for osteotomies because we like rigid stable fixation of the osteotomy with plates and lag screws and early motion and we feel we can't do that reliably with the the soft tissue repair That's great. I, I think um, what we'll do in, in the interest of time, Dr. O'Driscoll, at the end, if we have some time, we might come back to those slides because th I think that would add quite a bit, but um, I want to keep moving. Um, let me share my screen one more time here. All right. So uh, we're going to move on to Article Three now. Um, this is uh, Dr. Jupiter, Dr. Jupiter's article: Electron Osteotomy for Exposure of Fractures and Non-Unions of the Distal Humerus. Okay, so I'm here with Dr. Jupiter. We're going to talk about the paper on electron osteotomy for exposure of fractures and non-unions of the distal humerus. Dr. Jupiter, thanks for joining us. Um, I, I think my first question I'd be curious to know is kind of what was going on at the time that you know you decided to come out with this paper. Um, I've done a little bit of research on it. And it's, you know, obviously prior to this, there is a lot of literature published on problems with doing an electron osteotomy and non-union after it, but what, you know, what was kind of going on at the time that, led you to do this study? Um, yeah, that's, you, you, uh, you surmised that very well. Um, the uh, experience in the literature uh, was somewhat negative uh, regarding this technique. Uh, because you are creating a fracture, it turns out that the actual fixation of the uh, osteotomy was proving to have some problems for a number of people. This is a technique paper. You know, in the era of uh, randomized controlled trials, et cetera, we've lost sight sometimes of, of analyzing the, a technique. And if it's done thoroughly, um, it can provide information for the reader, for people. So I uh, learned during my residency in the late 70s, this was about the only approach short of procedures for total elbow arthroplasty. And uh, it became evident that there were specific pitfalls and pearls that made the osteotomy more predictable. And I can go through that with, that, with you if you'd like. Uh, yeah, I think that would be per se. Yeah. In the first place, um, it is good to know where the ulna nerve is when operating around the proximal ulna or the humerus. Uh, there's a lot of variation in how people deal with it in fractures, and <clears throat> the uh, Canadian combined uh, study group looked at the only nerve specifically and found uh, more than a, uh, a handful of people had ulnar nerve symptoms uh, after surgery, regardless of what you did with the nerve. 
um, but um, most resolved over time, but it takes a long time. But I've always felt that not only knowing where the nerve is, but <clears throat> uh, I like to mobilize it sufficiently as it goes into the two heads of the flexocarpial narus and proximally up to the medial intermuscular septum. And this is where you see problems with the nerve uh, when they, it doesn't do well. It either gets adherent in one of those two places. So I think it's worthwhile in most cases um, to do this, especially if patient has preoperatively symptoms. Okay. So this next thing is where to and how to do the osteotomy. Um, you would like to do the osteotomy in the very center of the uh, hyaline cartilage. And actually, many studies have looked at the anatomy of the uh, olecranon sulcus. And believe it or not, there's robust cartilage on the coronoid, and there's robust cartilage uh, in the olecranon tip, the very proximal olecranon, but not in the middle. In fact, many patients will have no cartilage there at all. So that's a good place to make the osteotomy. But how do you define that very well? Well, one way is to lift up a little bit of the ancaneus off of the lateral side and take a look inside. Hmm. And you'll be able to get a bit, much better appreciation of, of that um, uh, area uh, of uh, the center of the electron sulcus. So we'd like to do that um, in a way that uh, we can be more confident that the uh, majority of the osteotomy is done in that spot. So the next thing is, if you can put a, a sponge or tape or something from the lateral side to the medial side, that will help you to elevate up the olecranon. And when you're doing the osteotomy, avoid uh, injuring the cartilage on the end of the humerus. That'll be your protection. I've always felt that creating the osteotomy in a what people call a chevron uh, manner has several advantages. They are uh, that you can reposition the osteotomy uh, and it's, it has some inherent stability because it's, it's not a transverse uh, osteotomy with very little uh, interdigitation of, of subchondral bone. And secondly, it gives you a broader interface that, uh, for healing. So that always made sense. And if you, if you get an idea of creating the osteotomy with the distal tip of that chevron somewhere near the center of the olecranon, sulcus, it, it, it will be very safe. And then traditionally, we were taught to use a very thin blade and cut a, a power saw two-thirds of the way across and then complete the osteotomy with a thin osteotome. And the rationale for that was that there would be some irregularity of the surface of the uh, anterior surface that might help also for interdigitation. Okay, so we've done that and then elevate from distal to proximally as to, uh, much as needed for exposure. And the exposure, frankly, is, is 
the best exposure for more complex uh, articular fractures that are distal to the um, olecranon sulcus. Those are very more difficult to, to gain visualization. When doing the osteotomy and elevating this olecranon up for non-unions, in especially supracondylar non-unions, um, those patients have been moving through their non-union and not necessarily their uh, uh, joint. And so when you elevate it up, you have to be careful that you're not pulling off cartilage from the distal humerus. Oh. So that's the approach, okay? Then the problem is how to give you stable fixation. Oh. And that's really the method of treating olecranon fractures at the same level. The K-wires, uh, if you aim them, aiming them slightly ulnarward and from the dorsal or inferior surface of the uh, proximal ulna and try to get into the anterior cortex of the uh, ulna uh, distal to the osteotomy and you better to place two, it gives you simply rotational control. Yeah, And if you can do that, uh, you want to control that with x-ray to make sure you're not headed toward the radial side because there have been reported cases of, uh, of people having uh, problems with their forearm rotation because the tips of the uh, uh, K-wires are hitting the radius in rotation. And then um, you can bring back the... Uh, we brought back the olecranon into its... Uh, original position and by making a drill hole maybe uh, two centimeters distal to the uh, lecranosteotomy and you take a, a pointed reduction clamp that will help you uh, in the stability of the reduction while you're placing the k-wires and then placing the uh, tension band. The secret of the tension band is you have to have an adequate length of coverage uh, to to control the the forces that want to pull it apart, and so if you look at the measuring the tip of the uh, proximal ulna to the olecranon osteotomy, you need to be at least as distal to the osteotomy as that, and preferably more. So the main problems that people found in fixation where the K wires would back out. The way to stop that is to bend the K wires twice. So it has a 90, 90 degree bend and then hammer them into the proximal uh, lecranon. They won't back out if that's the case because when they do back out, it impedes people's extension. And the second is the size of the wires, remember many of these are done by orthopedic surgeons who like bigger and stronger and better is that. If you use smaller wires, but use two of them and space the distance even further uh, from the osteotomy with the second wire, it really presents very little problems with people leaning uh, on these uh, tension wires. So that's how I came up with that. and. Um, and 
As a result, when people were sort of starting to say, well, we've got these anatomic plates and we've got or uh, these cancellous screws and all this and that, and I don't want to get into trouble with doing a, a fixation and having to take it out, or people started to avoid osteotomy uh, with different tricep splits or elevation on either side, but sometimes that's not so good with the complex articular fractures. Uh, I thought it would worth, it'd be worthwhile to look up my own personal experience, uh, consecutive experience, and, um, and then report that. And uh, so we don't see that many papers anymore by technique. And I remember a surgeon out in your way in California, Los Angeles, Joel Mata. Yeah. And Joel uh, presented a series of a hundred and something pelvic fractures done through an, his own extended anterior lateral approach. Yeah. And he, the results were rather spectacular. And he said, this is not a, and it was in Journal of Orthopedic Trauma a number of years ago, this is not a randomized prospective study. And it's a way to show if the technique is done, uh, he, he sort of said correctly, yeah. but avoiding the pitfalls and by an experienced person, this is what you would hope the procedure would do. And so that, that's the genesis of this uh, this paper. That, that's great. I feel like that's a, a great discussion. You covered everything, I think, through the whole paper. And pretty much all the questions I had. My, my. Well, there's there's another uh, paper that was probably three or four years ago from Edinburgh, uh, the group there, and they looked at their experience with olecranon fractures, comparing plates or osteotomies as well, plates versus um, a tension band. Yeah. And more secondary surgery was needed for tension band, but it, as I mentioned, it was done because pins were a problem or the tension wires were a problem, and that can be avoided. But they found when the you had plates and in some of the older age patients, they had wound breakdown. And if you have wound breakdown over an implant at that area, which is notorious for not healing so well, yeah. that presents a major problem. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, another thing. And the final thing is, uh, if you have comminution, of course, that that presents a different story. You don't want to have that with an osteotomy uh, per se. But if you have a fracture and you have um, going to do a tension band, an olecranon fracture, but the opposite cortex, meaning the articular side, is impacted or not um, uh, intact, you have to be careful with a tension band because it will flex. In order for a tension band to work, by definition, the opposite cortex has to be intact or created with a bone graft or something else. Otherwise, you'll have a big bending moment and that, that won't work. Yeah. Are you still doing double wire for your tension band or? I've never changed. <laughs> you know, that's from 19, mid 70s. Oh, if it works, it works. <laughs> huh. 
because it works. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, that's that you kind of covered everything I wanted to talk about. So, all right, that's uh, then so we'll move on to the next uh, video. This article is results of linked convertible total elbow arthroplasty for the management of distal humeral fractures in the elderly. Um, this is Dr. Adrian Wong talking with uh, Dr. Strelzo. Welcome to our Distal Humerus Fracture Journal Club. Today we'll be talking about the use of total elbow arthroplasty in the treatment of distal humerus fractures. My name is Dr. Adrian Huang and I'm an upper extremity and trauma trained surgeon here at the University of British Columbia. I am very excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Jason Strelzo. He is here to discuss his paper, Results of Linked Convertible Total Elbow Arthroplasty for the Management of Distal Humeral Fractures in the Elderly. Uh, Dr. Strelzo is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago, where he is a traumatologist uh, and also specializing in upper extremity problems. When he did this study, he was at an institution that had a lot of extensive experience managing this in the entire gamut with respect to non-operative to operative. So it's going to be great to get his perspective uh, on this topic. Uh, Dr. Strelzo, uh, welcome and thanks for being here with us. To start, why don't we just talk a little bit about the background of the paper, why you decided to go with its topic, and maybe a little bit about the current state of management of distal humerus fractures. Yeah, no problem. I, you know, I think you you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I was fortunate enough to do a, my fellowship in London, Ontario, uh, at a very uh, specialized center where we saw and managed uh, the whole gamut of distal humerus and upper extremity fractures. And as as can be noted through the last probably twenty years of of literature, that we've we've seen everything from treat it with a you know bag of bones technique with a cast or a, a splint and leave it alone and just let it kind of consolidate all the way up to as we're talking about today total elbow arthroplasty we wanted to try and add something to that literature and, and i think we had a special opportunity just given the numbers that we were treating and the numbers we were seeing to be able to really study it so I think from you know state of current management, I think if you look at some of the recent studies that have been published, you'll see that there's kind of this pendulum swung uh, certainly towards management with total elbow arthroplasty, particularly in those patients that are, are elderly or older. Um, and some of that, you know, being drawn from some pretty uh, small sample sizes and some small studies that suggest that maybe it was uh, it was better or at least equivalent. Um, and certainly, you know, it can be a quote unquote simpler procedure if you do total elbow arthroplasty uh, in your practice on a regular basis. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it is not fraught with uh, complications and, and some very important caveats along the way. So uh, I think that's that's where we are now, uh, if I can summarize it for you. That's awesome. No, that's a great summary. So, I mean, with respect to your paper, you met, you mentioned that you're looking more so at the elderly population uh, with management with uh, the distal humerus with total elbow arthroplasty. So, can you tell us a little bit about the characteristics of your patient populations, uh, your patient selection, and then review some of the results and outcomes? One thing that we really want to stress and highlight is, that, you know, this paper and, and the conclusions from the paper are in elderly patients. So. 
on average, our patient population was 79 years old, plus or, nine, plus or minus about nine years. So uh, for us, we wanted to have uh, at least two years of follow-up. Um, and so for us, it was really first-time injuries. These were uh, unreconstructable fractures. Again, another important caveat. In terms of uh, your outcomes, you know, understandably, there was a significant amount of your patients who unfortunately uh, died just because of age. But the people you had back, they seemed to be doing quite well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the positive takeaways of the study, certainly. Uh, you know, if we look at uh, some of the scores we use, patients did very well. Um, and overall, their pain scores, again, you know, almost, uh, I think it was 70% of patients or 75% of patients had no pain whatsoever. Uh, and then, you know, a PRE of 37 and quick dashes in the, in the low 30s with the Mayo scores in, in the 90s. I think certainly these patients had very functional use of their elbow uh, after their injuries, considering how bad these, these injuries really were. Uh, I, I think you pointed out a, a pretty important point, which is I think 50, you know, 50 plus uh, percent of the patients actually had died before the end of the study. So, you know, being able to capture um, follow-up beyond that becomes difficult in this in this um, population. And I, I don't want to go so far as to say, you know, distal humerus are, are definitely uh, a fragility fracture that suggests that patients are in poor health, but certainly that is something that I think has been borne out in our paper and, and in a paper out of Toronto uh, they had similar findings looking at comparing uh, a randomized trial of, of open reduction versus total elbow. I think they, they had over 50% mortality in two years as well. So, Yeah, and that's it's super interesting you said that because even in your study, you know, you noted that uh, these patients, you know, had some complications well outside the index surgery. They came back with periprosthetic fractures due to subsequent falls, just indicative maybe of their frailty. Um, can you talk a little bit about the complications that you had and maybe the rates and how they compare to kind of what's in the literature? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the takeaways that we really wanted to highlight uh, is that this is not a complication-free operation. Uh, I, I think, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, this pendulum is swung that, you know, total elbow is is the preferred solution for distal humerus fractures. And I, and I think... Um, for selected patients, it may be, but you have to appreciate that in our study and in a number of other studies, the complication rates in the low to mid 20s is at two years, right? Remember, this is only two years of follow up, is very high. And in many other operations, we would not accept the 22% complication rate. That was the message we were hoping to, to kind of put forward. You know, I think everyone is looking for the the panacea of how to treat distal humerus fractures. And I think what we're trying to say is even in select patients with unreconstructable fracture patterns, this is not the magic potion that's suddenly going to allow these patients to, to be cured. But certainly, you know, we published another uh, paper on total elbow for, for rheumatoid arthritis. And we, again, had a really high rates of ulnar nerve um, irritation and in some cases some ulnar nerve injuries that didn't recover so again not a not a uh, a perfect solution but one that as we talked about for results may provide some good outcomes in terms of the those complications as you mentioned though even though it's high it seemed to be on par with essentially primary elbow arthroplasty would you agree with that yeah i think i think that's uh that's the interesting thing you know if you compare 
our complication rate uh, compared to primary total elbow as well as ORAF for uh, for her elbow fracture and distal, distal humerus fracture, we're pretty much on par. So, you know, that, that 20%, although it's absurdly high, you have to put it in context and realize that, you know, if you're doing total elbow, these complications are going to happen. It, it certainly seems to fit well within the realm of the complication rates we see, uh, both for distal humerus fractures treated with ORIF and for primary total elbow arthroplasty. With ORIF for distal humerus fractures, there's arguably a higher rate of major reoperation. And I think you mentioned that in your paper. This could be one of those things where it's a one and done surgery for this elderly population. What is your take home? You know, is this somebody that should be done routinely or is this somebody that something that should be done by a subspecialty surgeon? People may disagree with this. I, I <laughs> this should be done by a, a subspecialist that knows what they're doing. That that does these at a relatively uh, in in a relatively proficient way at a relatively high volume. I think time and time again we've seen uh, that that surgeons that are that are high volume that are uh, trained and have the ability to do these operations at a very high level. Um, do better, their results are better, and their outcomes are better. And so, you know, given that this complication rate is 20 plus percent, you want to keep it as low as 20 plus percent. Uh, so before we kind of sign off, I just wanted to maybe bring up one possibly contentious issue. In your paper, you specifically mentioned one patient who had poor patient-rated outcomes, uh, however, really good objective outcomes. And his main complaint was that they were unable to carry heavy objects. Is somebody like that better for, for example, a hemiarthroplasty, which is not necessarily approved in the States, but I know that you and I both have experience of doing it uh, being from a Canadian center. Yeah, I think that, that's a great, that's a great question and a great topic. I, you know, I obviously I, I now practice in the States, uh, having seen hemiarthroplasty and some of the results of hemiarthroplasty when I was in Canada and training in Canada. You know, I think it's a fascinating question about what the role of that implant is. Certainly for this patient whose main concern was, hey, I can't lift heavy objects. I can't get back to those strength things that he wanted to do. That probably tells you that maybe the total elbow was not the right answer for that particular patient. I think there's probably a role for it. Uh, when you see some of this, the results from some of the small uh, studies showing uh, the results of hemiarthroplasty, they can be fantastic. And having done some, you know, having done them in my fellowship uh, and seen the, the results of them, wow, the recovery is fast, the patients get back to activities. Um, and I think one of the things that's kind of nice is the bailout of that operation is a total elbow arthroplasty, right? And so would this patient in particular have been a, a candidate? Would he have been happier? Probably because objectively, you know, he had scores that you know, you, you or I would probably be happy with on a day-to-day -day basis. Awesome. Well, thanks again uh, for being here. Again, this is uh, Dr. Jason Strezzo. He is an assistant professor at University of Chicago uh, doing traumatology and upper limb problems. Um, yeah, thanks again for being here. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me, Adrian. Uh, look forward to the discussion. Great. So that concludes uh, our Welcome to last two videos. Um, and we'll move on to the question and answer session now. So we'll hand over to Dr. Pinnell to uh, take it away and lead this discussion. Thanks, yeah, I got one.
I can, we can kind of pull all of the uh, authors individually maybe, but somebody wants to know which method of fixation you prefer for an electrodon osteotomy, tension band plate, uh, cannulated screw, or tension band plate or cannulated screw. I think we know Dr. Jupiter's answer, but maybe we can start with uh, Dr. Henley. Sure, I think the question was tension band, I'm assuming wire or some yeah. um, plate or cannulated screw. We're basically on, you, at Harborview using 100% plates with a lag screw through the plate, usually out the anterior cortex, uh, at least obliquely across the osteotomy site for compression in addition to the tension developed in the plate. Yeah. How about Dr. O'Driscoll? I was wondering, um, Dr. Henley, if you've had any problems with wound healing, because although I designed a plate that can be used for that, I don't use plates for osteotomy anymore. I, I did for a little while, and I've gone back to tension band with wires. Um, certainly a screw or other techniques is, you know, has some advantages too. But having said that, um, I did have a few patients with wound healing problems. I'm talking about erosion because of the plate, including one who eroded not through the wound, but about a centimeter adjacent to the wound because the wound was placed off the olecranon. And I've seen some other surgeons, patients. So I was just wondering, have you been able to get around that problem and prevent it? Uh, maybe it was because I think maybe I moved too early on those patients, perhaps. Well, well we move actually pretty early. Um, the protocol, at least for my team, was to immobilize only for 48 hours. Uh, and usually we kept him in the hospital for that time, removed the, the uh, splint, gave him a sling, told him to only use the sling for comfort and start active flexion, gravity extension if there was an osteotomy. We'd let them uh, actively extend uh, if there was not an osteotomy, but we started all of them moving at 48 hours. In terms of soft tissues, I think it also depends on how much you undermine those soft tissue flaps in the proximal ulna. And if you're judicious, um, I only saw in my clinic, because it was three of us, we have three teams, a third, I guess, of all them done um, at Harborview. And I cannot recall in the last decade, a soft tissue wound associated with a plate as long as you're judicious about soft tissue management. Um, see, I thought of one other thing to say, but it's, uh, I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> well, um, I'm but... glad you mentioned about the soft tissue because I can quite imagine that, that I might not have recognized that early because it's a long time since I put a plate on, on the osteotomy, certainly at least 15 years. And um, so maybe I was elevating down onto the ulna, elevating flaps yeah. like at the humerus and didn't even clue into that. So well, we, I, I really we, appreciate that. A, a couple of things I've found out too, is that if you elevate, um, including the periosteal submuscular envelope, we use actually a bovi right down the, I guess it's a posterior cortex mm -hmm. and uh, release that and then close that over the plate, you can't do it um, really proximally, but you can close it in the, you know, proximal third. Um, that really solves the soft tissue injury. And I should also add that if that closure is tight, I will do a little fasciotomy on both the extensor wad and the, the mobile wad extensor and flexors uh, to allow that closure to be um, easier. And you can do that um, fasciotomy either externally underneath the soft tissue flap, then you have to elevate more or internally 
uh, along the periosteal muscular border. So uh, usually I release it internally, meaning after you've elevated it, that frees it up. But if it's still tight, then I'll make either pie crusting or a longer, uh, sorry, fasciotomies there to allow soft tissue closure over the plate. And we don't, we haven't seen uh, problems, but again, I'm only seeing about a third of them. Um, and, you know, we're doing quite a few um, at Harvview. We, nobody seems to like to do these. So everything from a quarter of the landmass, the US of these, I think are coming to Harborview for the most part. We're, the, we're a level one for a quarter of the land mass, the US uh, geographically, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And how about Dr. Strelzo? I, I use the majority of the case, I use a plate, but uh, in patients where their skin is, is poor, or I think they're gonna have poor soft tissue uh, coverage, I will typically go to the technique described by Adam Watts, where I use a tension band with suture only construct. Um, and that that's, uh, seems to be working out for me now. Three three years haven't had any problems, but uh, I think I think the long term implications of that technique haven't, haven't been uh, borne out yet. But that's what I use in case I'm worried. I'm just not going to get that co that coverage over the the proximal aspect. I think a, a little bit of a transition to another question on soft tissue, but uh, somebody's asking uh, about timing of fixation, and obviously probably dependent on the energy of injury, but. If anyone wants to comment on, you know, delayed versus acute fixation of these injuries. Well, I might say uh, there's really no urgency to do these. Um, <clears throat> certainly not in the middle of the night. And um, talking about the older age patient, uh, if they've landed on their elbow as a reason for causing the fracture, that's a traumatized skin by itself. So I, I think um, just like uh, talking about post-op motion, uh, as, as Dr. O'Driscoll pointed out, there's no urgency to move the patient because of soft tissue. So I think um, in this case, it's not, except an open fracture, of course, but otherwise um, I don't see the need. One, one other point, if you elevate if you make a straight dorsal incision and elevate flaps on either side, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with that as long as uh, you're careful. Uh, when you close, you have a dead space. And um, I didn't hear any, uh, anybody talk about drains, but I think uh, you can collect a hematoma there pretty easily. So I think it's um, wise to, to use a drain for 24, 48 hours. Yeah, I agree with you, Jesse, because the arm is generally dependent in a sling-like position, and it's best to, we do use a small uh, hemovac drain. If I may just expand on that question really quickly as well, if we talk about specifically, like Dr. Jupiter had started talking about the elderly patients, you know, what is people's um, impressions on even how to treat them because, you know, Jason and I from the Hulk, you know, have, there's been some papers saying that for the elderly patient, non-operative intervention is probably reasonable. And then we've moved to this thing where, you know, total elbow arthroplasty is probably reasonable. And then the question then becomes, do you do, you know, primary total elbow arthroplasty for distal humerus in the elderly, or do you wait and then try to do a secondary salvage procedure? Because there is possibly some data now saying that a secondary a secondary total elbow, the outcomes may not be as good as a primary one. Uh, so I don't know, Jason, maybe we start, we start with you and then, and then 
you know, ask, uh, ask the rest of the panel what they think about that. That's a huge question I've been kind of thinking about recently. So, um, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question, Adrian. I think, I think you, you know, your, your training is similar to mine. So I, I try and fix these at, at all, all costs as, as often as I can and then deal, deal with it if there's a problem later. Um, I, I'm not someone who likes to just go with the, the initial primary total elbow. Uh, whether that's a mistake or not, I, I don't know yet, but I, I'm sure I will find out. Uh, I'm fascinated to hear what the others think. I, I uh, want to get some clarification on how you define elderly. Uh, some people <laughs> say elderly. That, that's a landmine. So, I mean, I, maybe how would you define elderly? Well, uh, elderly is one year older than myself. Uh, now I'm going to be in perpetuity. I'm going to be 75 in a three or four months, and um, I have good bone, and I wouldn't want a total elbow. I'm uh, pretty active, and so when it, it's not it's not chronology, as you know, it's physiology. And uh, your group in London and uh, in South America and from uh, Glasgow have published on bag of bones. Uh, and the original paper was in the early 70s by Brown and Morgan in England. And the results in the older age patient were spectacular. Uh, and uh, you need to have a reasonable alignment if your uh, epicondyles are malrotated and you can't get a, a trochlea lecranon orientation in the bag of bones, they probably won't do so well. But otherwise, remember, patients really don't need full motion. What they need is no pain and a good hand function and get to their mouth, especially if they have their other hand. Um, so I think we put a lot of emphasis on motion, which is of course important, but uh, some of these patients that I've treated with bag of bones over a number of years don't get full motion, but don't have pain if, if it works out well and and move functionally adequately. Yeah, I would agree with you, Jesse. I've used that technique in unreconstructable fractures in uh, people who I didn't think would tolerate surgery or who, uh, who are so osteoporotic that uh, I thought uh, arthroplasty was um, better, but that their overall condition um, was could that could be addressed later so you can get good outcomes well tolerable outcomes with, if they have a functional range of motion with bag of bones yeah i think i, I would add that um I, I certainly agree with what's been said but i would add that um, as i try to make the decisions the factors that go into my mind are is this patient um, not not elderly but is this patient um very low demand in a sense, or are they frail? And how, how urgent is it that I restore the function of the limb in this patient? There are patients for whom a trial period of seeing how they do is, is, a, is a horrible sentence for them. Meaning that, you know, they, that's a real disability for them to go through that period and you need to restore them. And uh, so that would be another factor. And then the final is that doing um, elbow arthroplasty over many years and loving it and being involved in design for over 20 years, 
you know, I, I, I'm very aware of the potential problems. And, you know, one and done, uh, you know, it's a good expression for a number of years, I was thinking, well, that's probably what we'll do. But when you see some grave disasters after total albar arthroplasty, it, it, it causes you to just hold back the enthusiasm a little bit. Now, uh, having said that, um, and I think that total albar arthroplasty is in a period where it's going to really change. So if you're near the beginning of your career, I think the indications will be very different at the other end of your career than they are right now. But I think we have to be careful about it. Yeah, Dr. O'Driscoll, I agree with you. It's funny, uh, Dr. King told me before I finished, he said, uh, Adrian, um, just so you remember, a total elbow arthroplasty is a, is a staged procedure by definition, you know, because there's always going to be a, you know, a second revision down the line. He's kind of waiting for the other, other, uh, other shoe to drop, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got a, we have a couple minutes. I don't know, John, do you think we have time to see if Dr. O'Driscoll can share his slides on the capillar shear components? Yeah, that would be, that'd be, uh, that'd be great if you could. I can, yeah, I'd be glad to try. So I'll just click, hopefully it works in this setup. I'll just click on share a screen and, and go to that. I, I uh, pulled it up here. So um, can you see my screen okay? It says common unit coronal shear. Yes. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna show the concept of how you do this um, first in a fracture that's just a common unit coronal shear. It's not a distal humerus fracture. So you can follow the sequence and then I'm gonna show the same thing in a comminuted distal humerus fracture. So the first thing is you wanna bring two screws, one then the next, from the medial side across into the lateral side in this anterior portion. So here's the coronal shear over on your left, and we want the screws to come in close to the sub subchondra bone longitudinally along that fragment. Then you're gonna bring in a couple of screws from lateral to medial through a plate. The plate itself isn't doing anything for the fracture, but the plate is an anchor point for the screws that go across, interdigitate with those first two, and then are anchored in the medial trochlea as well. Then you want to bring one or two screws from back to front, or as Dr. Henley said, you know, you, you may end up doing some, burying them even front to back. So that's, that's in, a, in a coronal shear fracture that's not a distal humerus fracture. Here we have now, and I just picked this one, there'd be other ones we could pick, but this is a distal humerus fracture with a coronal shear component. Um, I picked this one as well because a key part is that the medial trochlea and medial epicondyle are not one fragment. Dr. Henley pointed out that that's, that's a really critical thing. It's always the first thing I look at is, is the medial epicondyle, and the, are the medial epicondyle and the medial trochlea one fragment? But here they're not. So we want to bring one screw and then a second screw from the medial side. Remember I said one at the epicondyle and one down low. In this case, I actually went up high and put another one later down low. So these come across from medial to lateral into the anterior part of the capitellum over here. And then we want to lock those in place with a couple of screws interdigitating from lateral to medial through the plate. So far, everything is in a plate. Then we want to fix with a couple from one or two from back to front. And because the medial trochlea was also, you know, a coronal fracture, I also added one medial on the medial side from back to front. Then there are, you know, some additional screws in place, but, but that, that's the concept. And, and otherwise the technique is just as one would use for a distal humerus fracture of a different nature. And, and the principles being that all of that hardware in the distal segment, except for the 
added screws at the end from back to front are contributing to supracondylar stability as well. That was a surgeon who was told that his fracture, 50 year old surgeon, his fracture was not fixable and he would have to have an elbow replacement. But he did really well. He healed it very, very well and did well. Actually, uh, years ago, many years ago, we made a paper. We call that a triplane fracture. Yeah. And it's in. That's right, Jesse. Covers all three planes. Um, yeah. yeah. Good job. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not easy. It's very straightforward if you, you know, if you follow it step by step. It does require very precise placement of those first two screws into the coronal shear. And a targeting device is a good thing, but you can just drill across. And I drill right out the other side to make sure that I see where it comes out. That's great. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I think that's a great place to end, uh, just given the, the time. We just have a few take-home messages. Um, we heard a lot of great points tonight. Uh, Dr. Henley spoke about some of the earlier failures in that series in the late 70s and early 80s and with one-third tubular plates. And this led them to using larger stock DCP plates, which allowed for early range of motion. And that's has really given rise to our modern constructs. Uh, Dr. O'Driscoll then talked about their principle-based parallel plating technique. And a, a few of these principles boiled down to what he described as a locking system of screws uh, to again uh, achieve the end of rigid fixation for early range of motion. Electronosteotomies, although easy in principle, um, the devil is really in the details uh, when doing this procedure and Dr. Jupiter took us through this technique and highlighted uh, some of these details including where to position the chevron, finishing the cut with an osteotome, and tips with respect to his tension man construct. Finally, uh, Dr. Strelzel highlighted the benefits, but also the risks associated with total elbow arthroplasty. Low demand elderly patients with a non-reconstructable fracture uh, seem ideal for this procedure, but they may have to be counseled on the limitations postoperatively, uh, as well as the complication rate uh, that we were uh, quoting uh, around 20%. So, uh, I want to, to just um, publicize the dates for our upcoming journal club sessions. Um, we're going to into August and September and October. The topics are listed there. Uh, there's no session in, in July. Um, we're taking a month off in the summer. You can access the recording. Uh, should be available within the next 24 hours uh, on the YouTube channel. There's a bunch of great videos there, including all the old uh, um, webinar uh, journal clubs. And uh, I just want to thank everyone attending. I want, to, I want to thank especially the moderators and the authors. Thank you again to everyone for attending. Mm -hmm.